0: Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne.
1: We've all seen the harrowing and shocking images from Afghanistan in recent days as the U.S. exit went so badly wrong. Wow, let's pray for the safe passage and security of people on the ground, including all the Americans who have been stranded in this troubled nation. On a different side of the globe, there is another troubled land. This is the island nation of Cuba which erupted in protests in July amidst food shortages and anger with the long-standing communist regime. Joining us to make sense of all this and to explain what is happening on the ground and offer some clear perspective on the strife and repression felt by everyday Cubans is a Cuban refugee here in America. Her name is Gillette Fregella, spelled F. R-A-G-E-L-A. Go look it up. She is a brilliant journalist and commentator and creator of the website ADN Cuba, about all things Cuba. She fled Cuba in 1994 as a young girl with her family and now lives in America, reporting on the situation in her homeland. Gillette is my guest coming up. You had to learn how to live
2: with a double standard. You knew that you had to hide what you believe, whether it was your religious belief in some cases or your political ideas or the past of your family because you didn't want to be stigmatized in school. So since very young age, you see Cuban children that are very aware that what they discuss in their house, what they hear in their house is not something they can go and say in the school because there are consequences. I remember people that enjoy the securities of a democracy sometimes- take it for granted we've been waiting for the catholic church to stand by the cuban people for a long time because i in my pers- it's my personal opinion i was raised catholic i went to a catholic school but they they have remained in silence for too too many years but now what we are seeing we are seeing a group of catholic priests in cuba that have really come out and said this is enough we are not going to remain silenced. We are going to stand by our people. And that's the those were the priests that you saw that took the, the virgin of, of Charity, La Virgen de la Caridad, on their arms and went to walk with the Cuban people during the protest. There was a priest, Father Castor, in Camagüey, where I'm from, that they beat him with a bat and they broke his head.
0: A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis.
1: I hope you're all doing well out there. This is another great show and most timely. I am excited to have our guest, Gillette Vrijella. She is a Cuban political refugee, a journalist in the U.S., And she's the founder of ADN Cuba. And she'll explain to us all about the latest upheaval in communist Cuba and where all this may be headed. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia.
2: Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your
0: cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your
1: cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel.
2: Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow
1: Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Gillette Fragella. She is a Cuban political refugee and journalist here legally in America. And she's the founder of the website ADN Cuba. I'm your host, John Aden Byrne. Welcome to my show. You're a Cuban political refugee, you're a journalist, and you're founder of the website
2: adncuba.com.
1: Cuba's in the news a lot lately. We had protests on the island nation sparked, we're told, by uh, shortages of food. There's a lot of shortages in Cuba. But mm-hmm. before we get to that, I want you to tell me your story.
2: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Obviously, this is a, an issue that is close to my heart and uh, to the heart of all Cuban-Americans and the Cuban people inside the island and outside the island. We're um, all over the world, unfortunately, after 62 years of uh, of this dictatorship, um, so I left Cuba when I was nine years old, almost 10 with my family as political refugees. Um, like many Cubans who disagree with the government, my father was a lawyer. My mother was an English teacher. Um, their parents, uh, were political prisoners like in the case of my grandfather, who was in sent to prison during the Bay of Big invasions. He was against the government, um, and was ready to fight the 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 Cuban regime and it was that in a whole issue with the missile crisis when President Kennedy back in those times didn't send the weapons for the the opposition to 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 have the means to to fight back so a lot of them very young uh, people who was like 26 years old and and an economist, and his students um, were waiting for, you know, ready to to fight for the freedom and the democracy in their country. They were sent to prison. He was sent to prison for 20 years. He left. He was able to get out after six with a negotiation with the church. Um, so this, this obviously had a huge impact in my life, the way I saw Cuba since a very young age um on my father's side or they also you know the the government confiscated all of uh their properties when they came into power and we're talking about a very humble family family that came from very Uh, humble upcomings that had fought really hard and had worked really hard to own their houses and their business. So it was like not even the upper class, it was a middle class. So it was very difficult for a lot of families, you know, to just see everything taken away from you. Uh, After 62 years, we see it as a normal thing that happened in Cuba. But imagine this happens nowadays to you or or to me or anybody that lives in a democratic country. So, and my father as a lawyer, have a lot of disagreements in the last years that we were living in Cuba during the trials with, uh, trying to defend he was a criminal lawyer so trying to defend people from going prevent them from going to prison for what he thought it was just very unjust uh crimes that there were no no crimes Cuba has something very interesting called pre-crimes it means that and this is something that we uh, back to fascist uh, uh countries also that it doesn't matter if you committed the crime but if the government believe that you have the disposition or predisposition to commit the crime you can be incarcerated so currently our human rights organizations only account for 150 well right now more than 600 after this protest political prisoners in the island but we they account for more than ten thousand people that are in prison right now in Cuba for pre-crime, so for crimes they never committed, just that the government thinks they, they're dangerous and they can't commit a crime in the oh. future. That is something a lot of people don't realize about what's happening in Cuba, and it's something that we don't see since, you know, fascist uh, fascist uh, regimes. It was something that even in the, in the Spain of Franco, General Franco, uh, it was something that they tried to in you know, uh, to do back in the days. And it's un- unreal that we're still seeing this kind of uh, human rights violation, especially so short, to, uh, so close to the United States.
1: You lived there till you were about age nine?
2: Nine, ten, yes. I there. and 19- you saw
1: your father go to prison. What was your life like? What was your lifestyle? There was obvious interference by the government, but in terms mm-hmm. of the things we take for granted here in, in America.
2: Well, uh, scarcity has been a, um, <clears throat> common in Cuba for a, with every generation. I think the m- the most difficult thing for for me as a kid and 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 for many kids in Cuba that were aware of what was going on in in the country and their families were critical of the government is that you had to learn how to live with a double standard. You knew. That you had to hide what you believe, whether it was your religious belief in some cases or your political ideas or the past of your family because you didn't want to be stigmatized in school. So since very young age, you see Cuban children and that are very aware that what they discuss in their house, what they hear in their house is not something they can go and say in the school because there are consequences. I remember um, I was very little, and something I said in school about religion, and and they they called the, my parents uh, to talk about it, and and sort of like mock me, right? Because oh, like you know, my family believed in God, and my grandmother believed in God, and and continue to go to the church, and in certain provinces in Cuba, people kept their their religious belief. Uh, closer, but in some other areas like in Havan or some other places, I mean, you knew that back in the days, if you had certain religious belief and you were outspoken about it because it w- religious was illegal for so many years, um, you know, you, you couldn't get a job or you couldn't get the, 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 the career that you wanted in the future. People learn how to live in fear. Um, it was very common. And since a very young age, I knew that, you know, everything I saw on TV, everything I was asked to praise on school um, was wrong. And it was uh, people that were responsible for a lot of crimes, crimes against, you know, my my own grandfather, my own family. Um, So it was very hard. Uh, It was very it was very difficult uh, for all of us. It was very difficult for my mother, obviously, and my grandmother, uh, back in the 60s, but I was very aware of that situation, and and there's a lot of hypocrisy, unfortunately, um, in in Cuban society. And there's a lot of um, that that what we say hypocrisy here, but we also have to understand that it's a lot of people have so much fear that they they have to go to those plazas, Plaza de la Revolucion, in the days. A lot of people that used to go there, clapping and chanting. It's because they didn't want to lose their jobs. They didn't want to be fired, or or they they didn't want. So did to
1: But did you say them. they didn't want to lose their yachts?
2: Their jo- jobs. Oh, their jobs. <laughs> their I'm jobs. Oh no, <laughs> yachts! But I'm
1: sure all those yachts were confiscated.
2: <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. No, they do. The people in power do have yachts, and they're not yeah. going to lose them. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Um, no, their jobs, their you know, their careers, and even students that didn't want to lose their their access to an education. And this is something very real. We have one journalist um, in our side in ID Cuba. Her name is Carla. Carla Perez, Carla Maria Perez. She was an 18-year-old woman studying journalism in Cuba. And because she was...
1: She works for your website, adncuba.com. I I did get a chance to peek at it just before we came on, and it's multilingual, Spanish Mm -hmm. and English, right? You can toggle from one to the other.
2: We publish very little in English, but I think there is a a tool that you can translate it, uh, but the translation is not not that accurate. Sometimes we do publish
1: certain things. It does exist in in some form.
2: Yes, exactly. It does. Um, And the story I I wanted to tell you about Carla, it's like she was an 18-year-old woman. She was studying journalism in Cuba. She was a part of a a political organization back in the days that was critical of the regime. It was like a, a, a political organization. So she was denied access to an education, not only from that university. They expelled her from the university, from the entire educational system in Cuba. She was no longer allowed to continue and finish her school. So she had to live, go, uh, go to Costa Rica. Costa Rica, um, some good, very good people there helped her out. She finished her education in Costa Rica. And last year, when she tried to go back to Cuba, they charged all of the passport fees. They made her um, rent a hotel because they need, she needed to quarantine because it was during the COVID uh, pandemic and there were quarantining people that were entering the island, all of this. And then when she traveled from Costa Rica to Panama, in Panama, when she was going to take the plane, they told him, you're not allowed to enter Cuba. The Cuban authorities say you're not welcome in the country. So this was a girl that has spent the last four years of her life out not seeing her mother, been, you know, exiled from her own country, was trying to go back to her country because she was not a refugee anywhere. She was not a resident and she was left in a completely legal limbo. And so Costa Rica had to, you know, take her back, give her political asylum, and for no crime. She had not committed a crime as a young woman. That is uh,
1: remarkable. Uh, You ended up in in Costa Rica for a time, right? And your family ended up there. And then ultimately you came to America and settled in Florida?
2: Yes, I live in Florida right now. I grew up in Costa Rica. I studied in Costa Rica. Then I came uh, to work in the U.S. um, on a TV station back in the days as, as a reporter and I lived here for many years, and I moved to Europe for for a while, and I, you know, I came back to the U.S. and I lived in in Florida for the last um, seven years.
1: I'm curious how your family negotiated its exit from Cuba because mm-hmm. we have these images of Cubans fleeing on rafts and makeshift boats. Mm-hmm. Uh, it yes. sounds like your father you know he was an educated man and, and an attorney and i think i heard you mentioned a church negotiated arrangement
2: well um what happened in our case and it was back of the 1994 was when um castro opened the borders and a lot of people were living in in rafts and ships and all that um actually one of my uncles was living that that way people were desperate uh, on a raft yeah, on a, on a boat, right? A boat, God knows Ride what kind boat. of boat it was going to be. Uh, in our case, my family, a big part of my family had left in the 60s. I didn't know my uh, half of my family until I left Cuba because they, were, they didn't go back to the island and, and they were not allowed to go back into the island for many, many decades. So they had been working with uh, Costa Rica through a program that Costa Rica had at the time Uh, to give us the political uh, asylum with the United Nations, a program that the United Nations, you know, have to approve you and review all your documentation um, and then grant you the, the status. The thing is that for... Cuba, you couldn't say that I'm living as a political refugee, you needed, especially if you were a lawyer or a school teacher, you needed a permit back in the days, the government needed to approve your your exit. So it was very uh, stressful for my parents trying to get all those approvals, uh, obviously trying to disguise the, the reasons that we were leaving the island, they did not allow children to leave the island back in the day as tourists. So it had to be like a a definitive uh, exit right so obviously they confiscated um well they took our house because right now things have changed a little bit when i left they took your house even if you paid it it does it didn't matter because houses aren't free you have to pay it to the government even if you um you know and then when you leave you have to leave it there (laughs) they take it back even if you paid it and not only that castros
1: manage it after that
2: Yes, yes. Uh, there's some people living there. They they gave it to some
1: people. So, so the house that you grew it. up in, your family homestead, somebody else is living in it now.
2: Yeah, because after we left, you know, the the government, you have to leave everything. The government confiscated. That's no, really so they, sad.
1: Do you do you ever think that you might get that the family might get that home back at some stage?
2: I'm not even really even interested on yep. on any of that. <laughs> That's the. The list of my concerns is, is what happened. I was so happy and we were so happy with safe. being able to leave and have You know, the opportunity to live in a democratic world that people that enjoy the securities of a democracy sometimes take it for granted. Yeah. And they don't really understand. When I see people comparing a democratic country with what we lived in Cuba and other communist societies, there's no comparison. No matter what problems a democratic society has, you always have the right to organize, to assemble, to try to push to improve the circumstances of, of your own country. But in these closed societies, people are left with no means to protest or no means to gather and try to push for reforms. And when they do, they're arrested, they're persecuted, and they sent to prison. No exceptions.
1: So it's totalitarian. There's no democracy. So, you, in it's other words,
2: totalitarian.
1: You fo- like in America, you could arguably say, and it might be a stretch in some instances that uh, some of the policies we're enacting have a, a taint of far left socialism or Marxism. Mm-hmm. But mm. Americans can vote the lawmakers out during the election cycle, so it's we're not a totalitarian state. No, we have or... a democracy in America. Mm-hmm, Even for yeah. all its faults, it, at least it works. You don't have it... that in Cuba.
2: No, and you don't have the diversity of ideas, whether I disagree, obviously, with, with the ideas that some people on the radical left and in the left defense. But, you know, in Cuba, you don't have any diversity of ideas. And people don't understand sometimes that... Uh, One technique the Cuban regime has used and totalitarian regimes is it's been a form of political cleansing. So they have wiped out of the society everybody that was critical, everybody that had a different opinion by sending them to exile or putting them in prison, repressing them by fear or even killing. There has been a lot of um, events in, in our history of like dissidents that just mysteriously died on a strange car accident and a strange disease that nobody was able to understand or or, or even foresee, So they have invested so much resources in this propaganda, also internationally, just to portray themselves as a humanitarian country, as this ideal of a perfect society. Just look at reality. Look at the quality of life that people have in democratic societies and look at the quality of life Cubans have inside the island. Look at the fact that Cubans anywhere around the world can prosper, live a life with dignity, work hard and support their families. And the only place Cubans cannot do that is in their own countries. The only place Cubans, even being the doctors, even being lawyers, cannot support their own families is in their own country. Because their regime considers you second-class citizens. That's why they treat tourists better than they treat its own their own citizens. They don't let Cubans go into hotels for decades. Cubans were not even allowed to go into hotels. Oh, but tourists, yes.
1: Cuba's economy is in tatters, right? I mean, your infrastructure Mm -hmm. is crumbling. People Mm -hmm. drive around in vehicles that are 60 years old and they're patching Mm -hmm. them up. We we know about those images. And there's a lot of poverty. Prior to the communist takeover under Fidel Mm -hmm. Castro, under Batista, the economy wasn't so bad. It had it had some of the highest standards uh, by in Latin America in mm-hmm. terms of food and your know, mortality mm-hmm. rates, and in luxury items and in quality of life. There was income inequality, however, but it was a democracy. Could you kind of share some of that where it's gone from? been a nation which had a working society and a consumer society and when people had access to goods and services to one that is now basically in shambles
2: yes well definitely Cuba before the Castro took uh, power had a lot of problems and a lot of turmoils Batista was in power he was a dictatorship but this myth that he was going, the, the Castro was going to eliminate of inequality and is going to eliminate all of uh, class differences. No, what the only thing he eliminated was prosperity in the country. And then everybody was equally, equally miserable. Am I saying it correctly? Yes. <laughs> um, and the Cuba had you're right. It had one of the strongest econ- economies in Latin America. Some indicators even compared to Spain. I mean, you, we had back in 1959 11,000 Italians waiting in list to go back and live in to go and live in Cuba. That's how prosperous Cuba was. Now, tell me, in which embassy around the world you have 11,000 people just waiting in line to go on and emigrate to Cuba? Right? It doesn't exist. And Cuba has social mobility. I mean Cuba uh just like in Latin America there has been social mobility you could move you had the opportunity to move from one class to the other to work hard to you know own business and 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 to prosper and the world thanks to capitalism has had social mobility and that we have never seen any other system yes it's is not perfect. Yes, there's a lot of inequality still, but we're moving toward, towards a better society. I mean, the data is, is there. And the data also says that as free, if a country is freer, then you know the indicators are better on those countries that have freer economies. So what they did is like destroyed all of the, of what Cuba had gained and achieved in terms of economic prosperity. Back in 1959, there was like, I believe, five cows per person in Cuba. Mm. Right now, well, if they find you with meat, it's illegal and you can go to prison because they destroyed all of the farms. They destroyed agricultural. They are completely non-resilient. They cannot produce anything. Um, They can't even buy as much products as they need because they don't pay. I mean, they, they don't pay companies. I remember this event back in Costa Rica. They were trying to buy shoes from a a, a fabric, a factory. My mother was working back in the day. And remember, my mother told the, the owners of this company in Costa Rica, do not do business with them. They're not going to pay you. Don't give them credit. And they know they, they are there. They gave them credit. You will never pay for all the containers of shoes and school items that they were purchasing. And they have done that with so many other countries. They're not reliable. They don't respect the law. They don't respect, uh, you know, international regulations. And what that's why they have put themselves in this situation, because they, they treat the country as their own farm. They have no accountability, no governability, and no transparency.
1: Fidel Castro had promised elections when he took power, but those elections never occurred. Permanent dictatorship.
2: Exactly. That's basically what I I, I argue on, on the article I published at the Sun Sentinel that you know, after 62 years of Castro taking control of Cuba with violence and governing, obviously, by fear, and the fact that, you know, he was never elected, he sees power through violence, they have committed systematic human rights violation. And when they he got into power, he said, in 18 months, we're going to have elections. Hmm. Now is not the time. I mean, when you hear this, that speech, How shameless it was to say that. And then 62 years after, not even after he died, there had no been, we have never had an election. There's, they allow all multi-party elections. It's illegal to even have a different party. It's in the constitution that Cuba can only have one party. System. There's and everything else is illegal. So there is no other ways for anybody to participate in this in society. And even if you're critical of that body there, you know, you, you have no ways to make any reform because other ideas are not are not allowed Are completely legal. So it's an attempt to individual rights.
1: Supporters and there are supporters in America mm. and worldwide of the Cuban regime bring up is the American embargo. They blame that for mm-hmm. its economic ills. What do you say to them?
2: Yeah, they, they even don't, they, they don't even use the war embargo. They use the war blockade, which Cuba has not had a blockade since the 60s with, with Kennedy. There's no blockade. It's, there are sanctions. they are sanctions on the title too. In order to remove those sanctions, it, it would be very easy if the Cuban regime had the political will to really remove those sanctions. They only... the the only thing they have to do is release the political prisoners and allow elections okay so it's not that they don't have the way and the means to remove the sanctions is that they don't have the political will because they don't want to lose power they know they don't have the people's support they have longevity but longevity doesn't mean that they have the people's support or otherwise they would open up they would allow this multi-party elections and when you look at the numbers of all the food that the U.S. exports into Cuba, mm. chicken, other products, um, agricultural products, even technological products and cell phone, etc you realize that. I was doing the analysis the other day with the, the, the data from the census, and you realize that Cuba exp- imports from the U.S. the same amount that Belize imports from the U.S. And Belize doesn't have an embargo. So the problem is way more complicated. And they complain that is that they don't they're not giving credit so they can and they don't have the means to pay everything in cash. Yeah, but the problem is that you owe everybody money. You owe the the, uh, the Paris Club money. You owe every business, uh, every company that you do business with, you owe the money. You don't respect any, any laws. That's what the sanctions are also in place because they stole from Americans, they stole property from people, and they just say, well, we have the right to steal. And then it is immoral for the U.S. to say, "Well, we have to have some sort of accountability when some a nation does this." So obviously, what's, a double what, what's
1: propping thing. up Cuba? Tourism is obviously not that viable in the environment we are today, and obviously with COVID, uh, mm-hmm. Venezuela was shipping oil, mm-hmm. and what else? Some like indigenous industries.
2: Well, right now they do have the support of China. China it's uh, it's is doing a lot of trade with them. Venezuela has obviously taken a toll on them because of the situation Venezuela is in. And one of their biggest uh, sources of incomes are remittances. So you have 2 million <clears throat> relatives outside of Cuba that obviously we feel morally obligated and we understand the situation that our, our relatives are going through the island. Yeah. So we send them monthly support and the cuban regime takes a big chunk of that support they take it through a company that is called gaesa which is a company owned by the military and the military owns 85 percent of the cuban economy so this is a military dictatorship they own hotels they own business they own financial institutions that's one of the problems that western union it was operating in the island through um a company that was owned by the military. And uh, President Trump sanctioned this company, so Western Union had to leave the island. And now, obviously, Cuba has lost a big and important source of income because they were taking so much of what their relatives were sending into these families. Another interesting source of income that is uh, completely immoral is the traffic of medical personnel, health workers. This accounts for millions of dollars. It's even a bigger industry than the tourism. They have exporter um, medical personnel to different countries. They they get paid for that. And they take 90% of the wages of, the, the wages of those doctors. So they don't give it to them. Not only do Cuban doctors uh, make less money than the counterparts in Chile or any other Latin American country. That's the trick. They say, no, you can pay our doctors less. On top of that, The the regime takes 90% of the wages. They take their passport when they get to that country. In the contract, sometimes they said that you are not allowed to talk to certain people without permit. You are not allowed to date other people while on the mission. So it has been considered a a modern modern way of uh, human slavery, forced labor. This has been considered this way by the United Nations itself, you know, just by reviewing the data and the hundreds of cases. And why do doctors go overseas on these missions? Well, because the situation in Cuba is so sad and they have no ways to support their family. They spend all this time studying and what do they do with that decree? They can't even support their own children. So this is their only way to make a little bit more although they're being exploited by this government. The government argument is, I was listening the other day to shameless interview they gave and it's like, well, but we, yeah, it might sound selfish that we take all this money, but we invested on the infrastructure in the island. Right. Well, look at the infrastructure in the island. <laughs> look at the crisis in the island. and people are unable to get medical attention in Cuba right now with COVID. That's like a big part of this, the crisis that they're, they're having right now. Um, The other day, we're saying they have all of these doctors overseas helping in other countries, helping, and then 700 doctors inside the island. They were reporting the other day that are on vacation. God knows what's happening with that medical personnel that they don't even want to go to work, and the conditions they're going, they're having to to endure in this in this hospital. This is obviously a an assumption, but there's something going on here, and. And the whole system in Cuba is completely collapsing because
1: they, they're... And they're it used collapsing. to be lauded uh, by supporters for a great medical system, uh, the best doctors in the world, best mm-hmm. medical care and lots of beds. So that's gone.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I have obviously a lot of appreciation for the human capital, right? For, for Cuban doctors and, and, and their skills. However, yes, it is a myth. Because they don't have the the resources, a lot of time. They also, Cuba has gone through a process of mass education when they needed to meet those indicators because it served their propaganda. So a lot of professionals have uh, graduated with very little quality education. in or their quality yeah, education exactly and you see it you know when you compare them when they live the, when they leave the country so although that may happen in the in the first few years there has been a deterioration of the educational system. Um, at the same time they have always used this propaganda to in, in their favor but the Cuban health system before the revolution, was already good. Cuban had a lot of doctors per capita before the revolution. It was one of the best in Latin America. So it's not that they took a country that was crumbling and, you know, they make it flourish. They already had a good system. They just destroyed it, completely destroyed. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
1: My guest is Gillette Fragella. She is a Cuban political refugee and journalist here legally in America, and she's the founder of the website ADN Cuba. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. The economy is in shambles. So how would you describe the composition of the population? Are most people living in misery and poverty and then there's an elite and what size is that elite? How big is it? Is it a couple of hundred thousand people live really fat and happy?
2: I don't even know if there's the number is that big. I think uh, the poverty and the necessity is so big, and it's so uh, that everybody that has a little bit of privilege thinks that privilege is just too much because they're comparing to you know people that really have nothing. So if you want to look at the the in those terms of like different classes, you have one class, the group of people that receive remittances from their families. Mm-hmm. that it's not a lot. It might be $100 a month, maybe mm-hmm. some a little bit more, but that at least allows them to live a life of privilege. Imagine how poor the country is that, that those people that receive a $100 a month, you know, they they feel that they have more. And then you have... 50% or 60% of the population that receives nothing because they don't have relatives overseas. Those people have to live with the and, and the salaries, the wages that the government gives them that are so low, and those are the people that you saw protesting on the streets. And then you have maybe a 20%, 10% of the people that manage and that benefit from that corruption. Um, yeah, and it, the, the closed circle lives very well,
0: yeah.
2: and they live very secret secret lives. Because they obviously don't want to jeopardize the privilege because they have made the entire slogan that this is an equal society, there are no class differences. But what we've seen, I mean, Castro's uh, grandkid driving a BMW, a Mercedes in Cuba, owning a bar in Cuba, partying with everybody. The Castro's partying with Paris Hilton when they went to a bar. And this is completely impossible, not, not to meet Paracelton, but even to go to a, a restaurant and be able to pay for a meal in a restaurant for most, of the, most part of the Cuban society, especially people outside of Havana.
1: Do you worry about yourself speaking out uh, so forcefully for civil rights in Cuba? Are you monitored by the Cuban government?
2: Well, we have been attacked by the Cuban regime in several locations, uh, and my colleagues, people that work with with me, and, and we have been portrayed on the on their newscasts as being. Uh, they have even called us <laughs> CIA agents because that's their narrative, right? Everybody that is critical must have a hidden uh, interest, and they're with the CIA. That's just part of the defamation and the character assassination campaign that they, they, they use in order to make people fearful in, in Cuba. And also, they don't have any, a lot of them, they don't have a, a form of, you know, um, contrast information. I do not worry personally um, because I, I don't live in Cuba. And I know they dread a lot of the people that live outside of Cuba, like myself, but it hasn't been my case. Uh, they have threatened those some of my colleagues that live outside, especially the people that have their relatives inside the island. But the biggest risk, without I mean, there's no comparison, are those journalists that work with us and citizen journalists and 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 even activists that have given us and shared their stories that live inside the island. We have a lot of our staff under domiciliary arrest. We have some of our. Our one citizen journalist, Esteban Rodriguez, he has been in prison since April 30, just for going to a peaceful protest, trying to reach, a, he was trying to go and see a colleague, an artist in Cuba that was under hunger strike and they prevent them from seeing him. So they protested and they sent them to prison and they, have, they even took him and sent him to a maximum security prison for no reason. You know, so they the
1: obviously screen. don't work anonymously. They go by their own names and they're very public figures.
2: They're very f- brave. How
1: do they communicate Th- through the internet? All of that is open now?
2: Um, yeah, WhatsApp has been, it's widely used. There's also other apps like Signal, Telegram. Um, Cubans did not have data on their phones until 2018. So before that, they could go to certain points in Havana and connect to Wi-Fi. By the when the regime allowed for Cubans to have uh, internet on their phones. So things started exploding in a way, right? Cubans were more informed, were spending more time on digital platforms like Facebook or Twitter or Telegram. Um, WhatsApp is, has worked very well because it consumes le- less data, so it's more cost-effective, although those data plans are so expensive compared to the salaries that Cubans receive. Um, so that's a way that we connect. And then a lot of our staff just going to brought live broadcastings, and they interview people in their communities. They, you know, try to uh, tell underrepresented stories that are just not portrayed on on, on the regime press because the, the Cuban government obviously controls everything and the so, press, the TV, the...
1: They can get radio. all that. So they can get all that up on your website, all these live interviews and posts and the stories they're filing?
2: Yes. And, and on Facebook, our website was blocked by the Cuban regime after six months. Of, of us operate working so we use some circumvention tools um, so people can access the site and we relied a lot on on social media because people can read the stories and, and and find out what's happening through the videos and and the articles that are being published on social media and we have seen and really, Increasing our followers and and our readership from inside the island is the biggest demographic that obviously reads outside uh, our site. So that's very rewarding for us because that's the goal with with this website, you know, to really inform the Cuban
1: people. And how how, how long is this site up?
2: Well, I found that this site... I believe in two thousand seventeen, but it was more like an audiovisual magazine. We published video mainly, and then slowly, after the growth that we have, it it allows us to just increase the uh, and diversify our formats and just to publish daily in breaking
1: news. Excellent, and I believe you have your own uh, media company. This is part of your media group.
2: Yes. I have a, a media company that is all Ulu Media, which owns the the website
1: you're getting a lot of support obviously from the cuban population in the us as well and that's got to be a great source of strength for what you're doing
2: yeah there's a lot of solidarity there's a, there's so many attacks and so many attacks on you know our character and but, but it, that goes with the with the job unfortunately with you're working on on societies like this but there's also, it's also very rewarding because when you see that people send, send you their cases and, and they wanna, you know, speak up because they don't see out another way to try to find a solution for the situation. And when you see that something sometimes happens that they're able to, to solve something or maybe, uh, people in the exile community find out about their stories and there's a lot of solidarity, uh among cubans and a lot of people that will see somebody in need and they write us and they said i want to help this lady that you guys did an interview i want to send her something for her or her family or help there was um a group of people that call us because they want to send some uh, help some farmers that were like lacking some tools and they wanted to you know organize and send it to them so um that's very inspiring because it's very good when you see solutions you know I would say, Through journalism, not only you're informing the people, but also you know people. You are changing the
1: world. You are changing the world in a positive way. I want to go back to something you mentioned about tourism, a big part of the Cuban economy. So those listening hotels that tourists have gone to from abroad, they're Mm -hmm. run by the military mostly. I I always assumed that there was international money behind some of them.
2: Yeah, there's international money, and there's um, a lot of the hotels are. Uh, joint ventures with a, a companies in Spain, which is uh, obviously a big criticism, but the, the GAESA, which is this military conglomerate, uh, owns a lot of this, uh, you know, the the joint venture on the Cuban part, it's owned by this military, this military company. And it's obviously a big industry right now. COVID happened, they had to close the borders, they lost a lot of money with tourism, but they reopen the flights and they reopen it for Russian tourists. So they're having like four flights from Russia uh, a day, I believe, uh, tourists from Russia. And that's a big part of what happened with this COVID crisis, this spike that we've seen in Cuba, is because it happened in the areas that the Russian tourists were going to. Uh, because a lot of them, the, ra- the vac- vaccination rate uh, in Russia is not as high as in other countries
1: Mm-hmm. Cuba also has had a very long and complicated relationship with the churches, in particular the Catholic Church. Could you mm-hmm. speak to that? Because it was significant that Pope Francis visited several years ago and met with the Castros. And what a couple of things struck me one is that the Castros were educated by Jesuits in a very middle class college. They got a great education, apparently. Mm-hmm. And here was this Jesuit Pope. On the island, trying to improve relations with the Catholic Church, did mm-hmm. it have any impact? What was your reaction to that?
2: Well, I think um, Pope Francis' approach and 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 the things he has says of, he has said about capitalism and Cuba, um, it shows his ideological bias against capitalism and and you know, his personal agenda or or be a personal core of beliefs about these issues. I think he has some sympathies maybe from his youth to uh, towards the Cuban regime, like many people in Latin America, like many people in Argentina also. Because as you said in the beginning, the regime has done uh, – Tremendous and a very well-good job in their propaganda. They have invested a lot of resources, especially throughout Latin America. You have um, a lot of disparity in Latin America, a lot of corruption, and uh, sometimes the left uses these frictions and these disparities into sending this quick fix messages that people buy. And then they see it as, you know, the Davian and the Gallier, oh my God. And, and Cuba is, you know, this underdog and they they do not let them uh, create this perfect society in this utopian society that they could be creating. And the, the truth is, is that that doesn't exist. That's never going to happen. It's completely unrealistic because it is, um, it is not only an economic system that doesn't work. It is a moral system that attends to individual rights. You know, to all Western ideas that the individual has no uh, rights if it doesn't align and if it's not um, helpful for that ideology and that machinery that they're creating. So when somebody doesn't fix their purpose, they're completely, you know, disposable. They they don't need it. And that's what they use. they, They humanize you. By words like "warm," you know, "gusanos," like they said to the to the Cuban opposition. I think Paul Francis' approach and even the things that he he said during this um, uprisings and the the July eleven protests have been very um, sad to watch. Uh, how did the strike? It. Stri-
1: they didn't strike the right message for no, you. No, he
2: didn't. No, he didn't. And let me let me add something. The Catholic Church has we've been waiting for the catholic church to stand by the cuban people for a long time because i in my pers- it's my personal opinion i was raised catholic i went to a catholic school but they they have been they have remained in silence for too too many years but now what we are seeing we are seeing a group of catholic priests in cuba that have really come out and said this is enough we are not gonna remain silent. We are gonna stand by our people. And that's the those were the priests that you saw that took the, the mm-hmm. virgin of, of Charity, La Virgen de la Caridad on their arms and went to walk with the Cuban people during the protest. There was a priest, Father Castor in Camagüey, where I'm from, that they beat him with a bat and they broke his head. Their regime, forces of the regime, And not only they did that, then they put him under domiciliary arrest like he had done something. And the priest was only trying to um, give company to the protesters. And like he said, trying to prevent things from turning violent. But they're the ones that created the violence. And there's a lot of um, Catholic priests that are giving beautiful sermons and services and speaking up about freedom, liberty, and justice and calling out of the regime that, you know, the, the, what they're doing is unfair and that what they're doing is not, it's really damaging the people and it, it violates even, you know, uh, religious belief and values. So not not, not only because it doesn't matter if religious or not, but because what they're doing is like they're yeah. attempting and they're damaging, da- damaging humankind, you know.
1: Are residents free to go to church or does the Cuban government monitor and restrict mm-hmm. religious practices?
2: Well, for many de- years, decades, uh, religious was illegal, was prohibited in Cuba, and it, you know, if you were a religious person and you were spoken about it and you used to go to church, you were prevented from accessing certain careers and jobs, etc. After the nineties, the when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, there was a meeting even with Castro and some uh, regime officers that they said we need to give the people something to believe. They knew that people were feeling hopeless. They knew that the the impact of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it was actually in the 90s that they realized that they needed to manipulate and release a little bit of the tension. So they allowed slowly. Uh, religion back into society and one of the religions that the first religions that they allowed was Yoruba religion uh mm-hmm. this African belief that you know Cubans um Cubans have that is like a syncretism between Catholicism and, and African mm-hmm. uh, traditions and slowly they you know people went back to their churches and churches were opening so right now the, politi- the religious persecution that we had in the past it doesn't exist in that degree, but there's still a lot of persecution, um, religious freedom that is not being respected, persecution against, you know, some Jewish people also that they have come out and speaking, uh, spoke, spoken about that, the Yoruba organization, especially if they try to have some groups or, 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 or try to make any changes in their communities or they become very relevant. So anybody that, it's critical towards them. They're going to persecute them.
1: Let's talk about the recent protests triggered, we're told, by food shortages. It was, is there more to it than that?
2: Yes, I believe there are, there are a lot of factors. I, I think for the last few years, like I said, people have been more informed and seen the disparity more clearly in accessing the news um, in a way that they didn't see before. When we spoke with some of the protesters and we asked them, why, what made you go uh, to the streets? What made you join this? And most of them said, I just saw it on social media. Oh. So people had it inside them and they slowly started to lose fear. They saw others like Movimiento San Isidro, uh, young artists that were going on hunger strike for, um, you know, trying to advocate for their rights. And they saw what was happening to them. There was like a big protest of, I believe, around 500 young artists in front of the Ministry of Culture um, back in 2020. So I think the Cuban people started slowly seeing how older and how activists have lost fear and how brave they are. And this, when you add this with the, the shortages, the disparity, the fact that the regime denies having any problem because you read the press and very rarely they, uh, you know, they say that, okay, we're having problems, we need to fix them. They just wipe it up. We, we're perfect. Nothing wrong is going on here. And people get, got really uh, tired and the situation at the hospitals in Cárdenas, in Cienfuego where, you know, people were dying, they didn't have um, medicines and not even medicines to lower the fever of, of kids. I think all those factors, you know, got, got to a point that this was the result of decades and decades of oppression. Obviously, when the firewall uh, was broken, you know, the control of the information that they had for decades, and people have a little bit more access and to see what others were doing. So the internet opened that, up. I think that has a domino effect. It doesn't mean that we're going to win. The freedom fighters are going to win because you have more access to information. Because let's be honest, they have all of the repressive means to crush this protest like they did. They have weapons. The Cuban people don't have weapons. They have all of the money in of the country and the resources in the country to just like harass people. And that's what they did. They immediately sent police forces dressed as civilians with six To hurt the protesters, they waited for the night to come, and then they went house by house, just taking everybody. And we have over 600 people that have disappeared or are facing trials that have no legal guarantees at all, even minors.
1: What would it take to topple the regime finally? Are we within striking distance of that or are we no better off than we were 60 years ago?
2: I think we're better. I think we're in a a better situation. I think people's uh, beliefs and are more aware of what Cuba is, what's really happening in Cuba and that it's very important. I think uh, it is very important for the international community and leaders of uh, democratic countries to really understand what we're talking about and not see this as just like a ideological thing as things from the right or the left, but, you know, see it in all of its complexity and, and the human rights violations that are committed in this island. In my opinion, one good thing that the United States could do is to really not recognize the Cuban regime as a legitimate government. I think the U.S. Uh, needs to make the moral declaration that it will no longer recognize it. We did the same thing with Venezuela and um when in 2019 with the with the presidential crisis the united states stopped recognizing maduro and i believe that we need to take steps towards that in terms of cuba they were not elected by the people they commit systematically human rights violation and no government that commits systematic human rights violation has the legitimacy to be considered mm you know, to, to remain in power. So I think this could be really a good, a true moment in, in history, um, but in, it takes a lot of leadership to make this, you know, Cuba solidarity moment or its own perestroika, or it could end up being something like the Green Revolution, you know, just a footnote and, and such a horrific story of oppression. And I hope, I hope it, it doesn't end like that, for you know for the well being of the cuban people because they deserve to be free we deserve to be rejoined and 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 end this decades of separation all families have been separated for so many decades and that it, it has been crushing to the cuban people there's a lot of trauma in in our community because of what we had to endure for so many years. I mean, obviously other communist countries relate to to our story, but the fact that it had had gone so long, I mean, the advances, the technological advances and even human rights uh, advances that we had nowadays in the world. And Cuba is living in, in a world that we haven't seen since in the Middle Ages in terms of rights.
1: I'm very fond of this quote. I'm just going to read. It's by Bruce Walker, and it's still holds up today. It was written back in 2014, I believe, in The American Thinker. I'll just read it. It's talking about propaganda and how the communist regimes rewrite and airbrush out history. Marxists made it their business to paint their predecessors as presiding over despicable regimes whose deliverance by communists was glorious and noble. And that seems to be what's happened also in Cuba, Castro's Mm -hmm. and their, their henchmen and sidekicks. That's what they've tried to get away with for so long.
2: Exactly, all communist regimes have this thing in common: is that in order to remain in power, they need to create a false reality to the world. That the government is for the people, but they also need to create an internal false reality. And this is something. So so it's mind control, really. It's 1984.
1: It's mind control. Use all the apparatus of the state. Mm -hmm.
2: And one of the, the most effective tools you have in this is like council, council culture. I mean, Cubans don't, we don't even know. There's a phrase, uh, of a writer that, that works with us and he said, look, saben el pasado que les espera? Cubans don't know the past that is waiting. You know, when we have, when we go get mm-hmm. to a point in history that we have to face our past, it's going to be crushing because we don't even know. What happened before? There's so many things that have been hidden. There's so many. Uh, our historical memory has been shattered, and when you do that to a nation, not only it's true that you repeat yourself and you repeat the same mistakes, but also you don't know where your values are. You don't know where you come from, and it's very it's very easy to manipulate you because they have destroyed reality and they have created a narrative that served their purpose and they have done that since we were kids with our books we were was posting the other day in social media a book that um they gave me in Cuba to learn how to read and everything is like the militia people is on the street oh the militia is so beautiful the sky is so beautiful and the militia people it's in it's like everything is so uh Mm -hmm. The level of indoctrination, the the level of violence in 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 this regime, you know, since very young age, they. Yeah, I, I'm act- just
1: curious about that. Uh, you know, the way the airbrush out history. You know, when they took power, did they ransack all the libraries and the places where they could you could get an historical record about the past, so that locals couldn't learn what their true past was.
2: It was a complicated process because first there were like squat, firing squads, right? So they, they, they annihilated it. They, they killed a lot of the opposition, a lot out of critical voices. They sent in prison in, to prison, thousands of people. Um, we have some of our writers spend time in prison for writing a poem ba- back in, in, in the days, uh, in the seventies. So um, people began to have like fear And then they control all the school system. So the books they started to print were telling the narrative that they wanted to tell, you know, that Cuba was not free until the revolution. Then the the way they started telling you history, it was completely different to how uh, my grandparents uh, Mm -hmm. learned it. And so they began changing the even the vocabulary. They changed sir by compañero comrade so that they they were smart enough because you see the world also as you are able to express the world so they mm. deleted a lot of and wiped out a lot of uh, vocabulary that resembles like the the bourgeois or like the middle class mm. and they tried to make this so unique we're all comrades. exactly and if you said thank you excuse me oh that like they would mock you on the street because you know you were too um like bourgeois, like the middle class that we need we didn't need to have like those manners, like everything they started to We're all equal. everything. Mm-hmm. See, Some more then, equal than you. others. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Well, you're doing a fantastic job, and people should go to your website and yeah. it's adncuba.com. What's your next project in trying to liberate Cuba?
2: <laughs> well, um, we are focused on doing the best job we can and in a very in a responsible way daily and to try to you know increase the visibility of these stories and and cover all this on the representative stories and right now we're also uh working on building up the site to cover uh, Latin America more widely. We cover public affairs in Latin America and, and international events in Latin America, but we really want to focus on what's happening in a hemisphere more deeply because what's happening in Cuba, it's also affecting Venezuela, Nicaragua. Now we have the situation in Peru that, that knows what's going to happen with Castillo. So it seems like our entire region is moving in, in t- instead of walking towards freedom, it's walking, so we're a more, more closed and repressive society.
1: Well, that's a, a scary thought. And uh, let's hope there is some light at the end of a very dark tunnel. Gillette, thank you for being on my show. It's been my thank
0: pleasure. You.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aidan Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call nine seven three six six four. 9460 in the US or email burndesk at gmail.com That's 973-664-9460 in the US or email burndesk at gmail.com 973-664-9460 in the US or email burndesk at gmail.com